The reading this morning is from John 17, 20 to 26. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of you may be one father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world righteous father though the world does not know you i know you and they know that you have sent me i have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. From uh, watching the media recently, you could easily get the idea that atheism was on the rise. There have been some very vocal and very articulate atheists who've made it onto our televisions and even made it onto lecturing tours here in Australia. Uh, Leading the charge have been people like these two, Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens, who sadly passed away a few years ago now. They've been among the more high-profile atheists. They've written books like The God Delusion and God is Not Great, Why Religion Poisons Everything. Now, while the voice of atheism may seem a little louder than it's been in recent years, statistics kind of say that people still overwhelmingly believe that there is some kind of God out there. And strangely enough, it's actually atheism that's on the decline. Now, we started last week this series looking at the Apostles' Creed. Well, not so much looking at the Creed, but looking at the ideas that are taught in the Creed, how those express what the Bible says. Well, today we're looking at three statements from throughout the Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, and I believe in the Holy Spirit. While there's a consensus about God's existence, what God is like is not always totally clear. The Creed makes these statements in in acknowledgement of this difficult idea that we have in Christianity of the Trinity. One of the remarkable things about the Bible, though, is that It just takes God's existence for granted. And the Apostles' Creed does the same thing. It starts rather abruptly. The opening words of the Apostles' Creed are, I believe in God. Philosophers and and theologians down through the ages have tried to come up with all kinds of arguments for the logical existence of God. Uh, I found one website where uh, the writer has put together a list of the 20 different philosophical arguments that uh, for for the very existence of God. But the Bible doesn't feel the need to do that. It just states it 
clearly in the opening verse of Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God created the universe that we are a part of. It's just taken as read that there was a God who was there before the beginning of the world that we are a part of. No explanation about how God got there, no justification of his existence. It just states it as a fact. God was there in the beginning. But I don't think it's just the Bible that recognises God's existence. You only need to look around the world to see that the, the overwhelming majority of people acknowledge that God does exist. The majority of people on this planet believe that there is a powerful God. Now, while consensus may be there about God's existence, there's anything but consensus when it comes to what God looks like. Uh, A comment that you often hear from people today, especially here in Australia, is the God I believe in is, and then they go on to give the defining characteristics of the God that they have in their mind. You get the impression that God's a little bit like buying Subway, that you can have your Subway however you like. You can choose which type of bread you're going to have. You can have it toasted or untoasted. You can have cheese or olives or onions. Well, some people have the idea that God is a bit like that, that you can make up whatever kind of God you like. If you think that God ought to be loving, then you can say, the God that I believe in is loving and kind. And if you don't like the idea of judgment and punishment, then you just simply say, the God I believe in would never punish people. But the problem with all of that is that God has revealed himself and he's revealed himself clearly in creation, in his word, but above all through his son, Jesus. And the fact is, you don't have to guess what God is like. And you don't get to choose what God is like. We know what God is like because he has clearly revealed himself. Now, I'd be a fool to stand here today and think that I could explain every aspect of the character of God. That's not going to happen. So instead, I've chosen three things that I think show us clearly what our God, what the God of the Bible is like. Now, again, I don't think for a minute that this is going to be an exhaustive examination of these three aspects, but three things that show us what the God of the Bible is like. So we'll start with the trickiest one, which is the Trinity. The Bible says, and the Apostles' Creed reinforces this, that God is Trinity. We believe that God is three in one. We believe in God the Father Almighty, Jesus Christ his Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Bible repeatedly talks about there being one God, one God who is known in three persons. In the first few hundred years of the the church's existence, this was without a doubt the biggest issue that they had to grapple with. There were attempts at explaining the Trinity, most of them inadequate, or worse still, most of them were actually heresies. Uh, The top three views that came up in the early church were uh, one view that we call modalism, which is the idea that God is one, but he can shape-shift and become another form, that he never he's never three at the same time, but can move from being one to another. 
the second idea, the difficult idea that they came up with, was the idea of subordinationism, that sure, there is God the Father and he's really God, but Jesus and the Holy Spirit are somehow lesser gods. Well, that's not what the Bible teaches. Or the idea of tritheism, that they're actually all three independent gods, and that's also not what the Bible teaches. The idea of the Trinity is not easy to explain, but the fact is the God of the Bible is a God who is three and one. Right from the very opening verses of the Bible, we see that they are separate persons. This is what we have at the beginning of Genesis chapter one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, darkness was over the surface of the deep, And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Right off the bat, two verses in, we're shown that there is God and the Spirit of God. And then we read a little further in Genesis chapter 1. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. God talks in the plural. God says, let us make man in our image. I mean, the sentence seems to be logically inconsistent unless you realise that there is a trinity. And the male and femaleness of human beings is some kind of reflection of that trinity. There are plenty of hints at the trinity throughout the pages of the Old Testament, but it's not until we get to the New Testament that it becomes that little bit clearer. At the birth of Jesus, this was the announcement that the angel made. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. There it is. All three members of the Trinity represented there. Father, Son and Holy Spirit. And again, at Jesus' baptism, we see a similar thing. As Jesus was coming up from the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love and with you I am well pleased. Again, father, son and Holy Spirit all represented there. But it gets a little clearer when Jesus starts talking about his relationship with his father. He says this in John's gospel, I and the father are one. Anyone who has seen me has seen the father. How can you say, show us the father? Don't you believe that I am in the father and that the father is in me? And the people who heard Jesus speak knew exactly what he was saying. This is what we read a little earlier in John's Gospel. Jesus said, My Father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. A little further on it says, The Jews tried all the harder to kill him because he was calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. It's funny, they seem to get that Jesus is speaking about his relationship within this trinity. And they're offended by what he says. Jesus knew what he was saying. 
And the religious leaders knew exactly what Jesus was saying. Now, I don't want to suggest for a moment that all of this is plain and really simple and easy to understand. In fact, as I've already said, the early church struggled for a long time with this issue. The early church creeds, things like the Nicene Creed and the Athanasian Creed that we're going to talk about a little bit in the coming weeks, they're preoccupied with how to express this idea of the Trinity. It's not easy to understand. It's not easy to explain. But it's central to our understanding of who God is. The God of the Bible is a God that we know as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The three are equally God, and the three are one. But the second thing that the Bible makes abundantly clear is that the God of the Bible is a God who is holy. Holy means pure or right in what he does. In in fact, God is the measure of what's right and wrong, what's sinful and what's acceptable. God sets the boundaries. And the word holiness also carries with it this idea of God being separate from things, different to the things that have been created. God's holiness means that God is unable to tolerate sin. There's a great verse in the book of Isaiah where Isaiah is being called to go and speak to God's people and it gives us a bit of an idea of what holiness looks like. It says this, And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the sound of their voices, sorry, at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, Isaiah cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. As soon as Isaiah recognises that he is in God's presence, in the presence of a holy, pure God, he's immediately aware of his own unholiness of his own sinfulness. If we want to understand who God is, and if we want to understand ourselves, we need to know that God is holy and we're not. It's in the nature of human beings to think that we can actually set the rules, set the standards, decide what's right and wrong. That's the very essence of sin. That's the very essence of what we see happening in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve making that mistake of thinking that they can choose what is right and wrong. We reject the holy God in favour of living our lives by our rules, by our values, by our standards. Now, if God is holy and can't tolerate sin, and if God is sovereign, the one who rules over everything... Well, I bet you can even join the dots on that one. Sin will ultimately be dealt with and sinful people, well, you know where that ends. There are aspects of God's holiness and God's justice that people universally love, that they're totally in favour of. We love the idea that God will bring an end to suffering and oppression in this world. 
We love the idea that, that brutal dictators and mass murderers and pedophiles will one day have to face justice. But we balk at the idea that we may be sinful or that God may judge us. But more about that in coming weeks. God is Trinity. God is holy. But I think above all, the idea that comes through the Bible is that God is love. The story of the Bible is the story of God's love for this world. A a God that we keep trying to run away from. See it all the way through the pages of the Old Testament. The story of God's people, Israel, who are repeatedly unfaithful in their relationship with God. But their unfaithfulness is matched by God's unfailing love, his incredible faithfulness to them. And in the New Testament, we see this ultimate expression of God's love. This is what it says in 1 John chapter 4. God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. Yes, God is all-powerful. Yes, God is holy. And yes, God is that shines more brightly than any of those is that God is motivated by love. Now, that's a huge amount to take in this morning, the idea that God is triune, three in one, that God is holy and that God is loving. But if that's right, then can I suggest three things that we should be in light of what God is? The first response from us should be that we should be humbled. The Apostles' Creed opens with those words, I believe in God the Father of Almighty. Well, I think the first thing when we hear that is that we should be humbled that we can and do believe in this mighty God. We should be humbled that we can know God and have this relationship with him, a relationship when we, where we can call him our heavenly father. We should never cease to be amazed that a holy God wants to know us personally and that we can know him. We should not only be humbled, but that should encourage us as we seek to live out our relationship with him. We don't live in a chaotic, confused and meaningless world. We live in a world that is under the control of a sovereign God. We may not know why things are happening, but we know the God who brought us into a relationship with himself through the death of his son on the cross. And that should give us great encouragement as we seek to live out our lives in relationship with him. And because of all of that, we should also seek to live faithful lives in our relationship with him. 
Don't take for granted your relationship with God. Don't treat it as some small thing. If the God and creator and ruler of all things, if the holy God who created this world has brought us into a relationship through his son, then that should shape every moment of our lives, every day of our lives. I love the way that John expresses that in in 1 John chapter 4. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us.